So welcome everybody to our live stream. This is Manar Mohawish Adli. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Mint Press News, and I'm also a host and producer for Behind the Headlines. Uh, very excited to have you all join me today. Uh, we're joined by Loki. And before we get started though, and I start talking, I would like everybody to share this live stream everywhere you can, uh, just so that we can uh, beat social media, big tech uh, algorithms. I don't know if anybody knows this, but I've been posting about it on my Twitter page and on my Instagram, but my personal Facebook page um, has been suspended uh, since my live stream yesterday. So I'm just trying to spread the word. I'm gonna get a sip of water here. So if you can just reshare and post this on Twitter, Facebook. All right, so we're gonna get started here. All right, so even as the, uh, the Biden administration calls for calm to be restored across Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank, on Monday it approved $735 million in new arms sales to Israel to restock Israeli weapons as it commits an unprecedented massacre in the Gaza Strip, the largest open-air prison and ghetto in the world, uh, with the death toll now well over 200, including 60 children. Now, U.S. weapons, including precision-guided missiles and white phosphorus, continue to be used in the onslaught against a civilian population targeting homes and media offices. But it's not just the United States who is directly responsible for Israel's onslaught and over 73 years of occupation of Palestine. A number of NATO-aligned governments are directly arming apartheid Israel, including the British government. Joining me today to discuss Israel's war on Gaza and the UK's funding of Israeli settler colonialism is British Iraqi rapper and political activist Karim Dennis, better known as Loki. In a career spanning nearly two decades now and one that has taken him across the globe, Loki has established himself as an underground anti-war favorite of hip-hop junkies and music connoisseurs alike, including myself. Loki has long been involved with activism in the Middle East and is a patron of the Solidar Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Loki, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. I have really appreciated Mint, Mint Press's um, deep investigative work, um, especially the work of writers like Alan McLeod and Whitney Webb too. I really appreciated uh, the contribution that Mint Press has made to help us really understand the structures of power. So it's great to be here. Well, I appreciate you saying that. It's so important to support independent media like Mint Press. So that really means a lot, uh, especially coming from you, Loki. Um, first, can I just get your reaction to the events of the past few days um, with all of these scenes coming out of Gaza? Well, we've seen 58,000 people displaced internally in Gaza. We've seen Israel destroying over 100 um, residential buildings just in the past week alone. We've seen them target uh, Media Tower Al-Jala. We've seen them target Samir Mansour's bookshop today. Israel, of course, has a history of also targeting communication systems in Gaza. Um, we know that in 2014, campaign that killed 2,000 to around 200 people, that 14 different telecommunication stations in Gaza were hit by the IDF, causing 32 million pounds of damage to Gaza's beaten and battered um, economy. What we've also seen is we've seen an attempt to turn what is a, a national and international uprising against Zionist settler colonial apartheid um, across the Green Line, uh, led by Palestinians inside, followed by the outside world, We've seen mass mobilizations across the world. We've seen an attempt, as is always the case, by the Israeli government and their stenographers around the world to depict this as a battle between, quote unquote, civilized Europe and a caricature of inherently violent Eastern Hamas, right? So when we're talking about it on the BBC, there is a fixation with this organization that, yeah, maybe the UK, Israel, the EU, um, and, uh, and, and one or two other governments 
have designated as a terrorist organization. But altogether, those um, governments, even if you join in Japan with them, only represent ostensibly about 900 million people. On the contrary, Switzerland, Pakistan, which represents 223 million people, Turkey, which represents 82 million people, China, which represents 1.4 billion people, Russia, which represents 144 million people, Iran, Venezuela, and more, do not designate Hamas as a terrorist organization. So unless we are viewing what is happening in Palestine through an intensely Eurocentric view of the world, then we would understand it in that way. It's important to be absolutely clear also that while the resistance is heroic and protected by international law, UN Resolution 3246 states clearly that the Palestinians, specifically the Palestinians, have the right to liberate themselves from foreign occupation through armed struggle. So while all of that is true, there is no parity of arms. Israel is the number one arms exporter in the world per capita. It's, um, uh, there are those that put it as the 11th most powerful military. There are those that put it much higher than that. It has really significant um, firepower capacities. What you are seeing is a population who have been beaten down by 14 years of some of the most comprehensive sanctions in human history, um, the, the, the siege that has um, had Israeli figures talk about putting the population in Gaza on a diet. You've seen all of that happening, but yet still they find the um, vitality to resist, the ingenuity to build new ways of protecting their populations. You know, this is really a heroic story of the ages when we think about the resistance of Gaza. And I believe that when history is told, it will honor those who have done what they have to protect Palestinian life in Gaza. And Loki, you know, thank you for breaking that down so eloquently and so brilliantly. You're currently in the UK. The conservative government there are generally uh, huge supporters of apartheid Israel. What has the British government's response been to Israel's current massacre in Gaza? And what role does the British government play in abetting Israeli crimes? Well, I think there's a very um, large story to tell in that regard. But if we just look to begin with at who funded the uh, organization Elad, who has ethnically cleansed um, parts of Jerusalem and is hell-bent on ethnically cleansing Sheikh Jarrah from uh, Palestinian inhabitants, Elad as a group is not only funded by the owner of Chelsea, billionaire Roman, Roman Abramovich, who made those donations from the British Virgin Islands. Let's not forget that Britain, while it has 142 military bases still in the world, it also has a network of tax havens that act to account for 37% of tax losses that all governments around the world face. So he moved around $100 million from one of those British Virgin Islands, one of those tax havens, to this organization, ELAD. But there's other organizations who are wrapped up in funding settler colonialism, like the Gold Hirsch Family Foundation, the Hertog Foundation, Jacobson Family Trust, the Clareman Family Foundation, and the Moskowitz Family Foundation. If we're to look closely at who these organizations are that have funded ELAD over the past years and decades, we find that the Clareman Family Foundation also funded the Center for Security Policy. Now that is an organization led by Frank Gaffney um, and they're funded also by Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, the arms company, but they came up with the idea of the Muslim ban for Trump and were even um, mentioned in the Trump administration's press release um, regarding the Muslim ban. They also fund a Middle East Forum, the Clement Family Foundation. The Middle East Forum funded Tony Robinson um, the well-known Islamophobe, pro-Israeli Islamophobe in Britain. And they um, were also, the Middle East Forum, as a think tank, were quoted 13 times by Anders Breivik in his uh, manifesto following his terrorist attack in Norway. We look at an organization like the Hertog Foundation. 
They also funded the Henry Jackson Society, which was responsible for pushing the prevent agenda in this country, which is state-sanctioned Islamophobia, largely reflecting upon uh, Muslim children in schools. Hertog found, uh, Foundation also funded the Center for Security Policy, the Council on Foreign Relations, the David Horowitz Center, which funded both Tommy Robinson and Katie Hopkins, and also the Friends of the IDF and the Middle East Forum. There's a pattern emerging here. The Jacobson Family Foundation um, also fund uh, the Washington Institute and the Friends of the IDF. So what we clearly see is actually a global push right. very wealthy um, Zionist actors who seem to believe they have an interest not only in pushing Islamophobia domestically, both in Britain and in the United States, but also in the colonization of Palestine. It's a point that David Miller made in this country, a professor at Bristol University, who's currently facing a relentless campaign to try and depict what he said as somehow um, anti-Semitic, when the simple fact of the matter is everything he said about the uh, convergence of interest between um, Zionist actors and the Islamophobic, Islamophobia industry are there. You know, they're documented by Sarah Marusek in her chapter in What is Islamophobia? They're intertwined, yeah. They're intertwined. And she found that 75% of the organizations that fund um, uh, the Islamophobia industry also fund Israeli settlement in Palestine, which are, of course, officially against uh, British foreign policy. Now, when we think about Britain and its uh, relationship to uh, what's happening in Israel. Obviously, you've got over 100 um, universities in this country that have £450 million invested in companies involved in Israeli crimes, from uh, weapons to uh, illegal Zionist uh, colonies. You've also got Elbit Systems, the Israeli arms company, having 10 sites across this country. It has four subsidiaries and two joint ventures and was recently given £100 million of our tax money by the MOD for its detect and destroy technology. But to understand Britain and Israel and Israel yeah. and Britain yeah. as an item, we have to look back at the development of how this happened. During World War One. You had a situation where Britain had previously had to um, import calcium acetate from Germany in order to uh, produce its uh, gunpowder. Now, at the time, a, a, um, a professor at Manchester University by the name of Chaim Wiseman came up with the idea of fermenting um, uh, converted starch into a poly sugar that could be used and and you could find that that um that starch um in corn and potatoes and and when converting it it would turn into acetone and um other forms of of alcohol that could be turned into a smokeless gunpowder so now what was called the wiseman process was then industrialized and adopted um, in Britain, the United States, and Canada. It was really vital to Britain at that time, and it helped to curry favor for um, Wiseman and the Zionist cause within the British government. We also know that there were five different battalions of volunteers from the Jewish community in World War I. There's around 600 soldiers fighting for the British. Now, among those 600 soldiers were Vladimir Jabotinsky, um, uh, ben Gurion and the son of Herbert Samuel, who would later go on to become the British High Commissioner of Palestine. So, in Jabotinsky and Ben Gurion, we see both the left, or the quote unquote left, and the right of the Zionist movement being trained by the British in World War One. Later, going on to be really significant leaders in the Zionist colonization of Palestine. You also had the revolt in 1936, which is the longest strike um, in recorded human history led by the Palestinians. It's then that several words entered the English language, like Duff, from Douglas Duff, who was one of the British 
um, uh, military figures at that time, or even a word like uzubat, which came from the Arabic asabat, which was the way that they, gangs, which is the way that they would refer to Palestinians who were resisting the British mandate, as well as the Zionist colonization of their land. During that time, the British would take Palestinians captive and use them as minesweepers. So we see here in this practice of essentially using Palestinians as human shields, something that Israel would, would later develop. Um, of course, the British general Ord Wingate is largely credited with, you know, as uh, Yigal Alon said in his book, The Making of the Israeli Army, that Wingate was in practice a member of the Haganah. Wingate developed what they called night squads and in a way established the skeletal structure of the IDF. Um, uh, Moshe Dayan later went on to say, we are all British General Wingate's children. Um, he is believed to have stripped and whipped Palestinians, taken them prisoner and carried out uh, nighttime assassinations. Um, 5,000 Palestinians died throughout the uh, Great Palestinian Revolt and their casualties are believed to be higher in a per capita way than um, Israel inflicted um, in the Intifada of 1987 and in 2000. Not only that, during that period, Britain demolished 2,000 uh, Palestinian homes and buildings, according to Alan Cunningham, who was later the final High Commissioner in Palestine. Later, obviously, with the Nakba, we know that Britain played an, an extremely duplicitous role. In some cases, like in Sheikh Jarrah, it's believed that the British protected the Palestinian community, but only to assure an escape route out of the city once Israel was established. We know that uh, General Hugh Stockwell was um, acting really to facilitate the cleansing of Haifa in some ways. And he, he um, you know, following his work at, you know, encouraging the Palestinians uh, not to resist, the... Um, the, the Ben-Gurion described Haifa as a corpse city and called it a horrifyingly fantastic site, which can happen elsewhere if we hold out. Also on top of that, we know that in 1948, an, a, a volunteer wing of the Zionist gangs called Mahal was uh, established. And Mike Tepperson, who was a former leader of that, said that um, the British had purposely undertrained and underarmed Arab armies in contrast to what had happened with the Zionist um, fighters. And many of the people that fought in Mahal were veterans from the British army in World War II. You had even um, a group of Indians, you know, of course, 2.5 million Indians fought on Britain's side in World War II. A group came um, uh, to fight for the establishment of the Zionist state. Obviously, we know about the tripartite aggression of 1956, where you know Moshe, Moshe Dayan um, identified it as a British initiative. Britain, France, and Israel attacked Egypt, and um, you know while Abdel Nasser is is historicized as nationalizing the um, the Suez Canal, two thirds of Britain's annual oil supply passed through it, but Nasser didn't. Um, block it, what he did was buy out the shareholders of the Suez Canal Company. It wasn't closed to international traffic. In any case, it was used as a reason to hit Egypt. In 1967, it was um, the Labour government in Britain, Harold Wilson, who sold hundreds of tanks to Israel, which allowed them to invade the West Bank and Gaza. Um, and also they had... Um, in that same year, Britain disclosed confidential information about the building of cluster bombs to uh, the Israelis. So, you know, Israel was largely reliant upon the arms from other countries that it could get until really the 70s and the 80s, where it started to become more independent in terms of arms uh, production. And one of the key turns towards Israel being more of a, a 
a, a independent military power in this way was in 1973 when the UK Atomic Energy Authority actually undertook joint research with Israel. Obviously, Israel is extremely secretive about its nuclear weapons program, nuclear right. weapons program that they actually tried to sell to apartheid uh, South Africa. So where are we today? You know, Britain has this uh, legacy. Long, <laughs> long history, right. <laughs> <laughs> answer. But to get to it, what we're talking about is obviously uh, Britain, uh, Israel tried to sell weapons to Pinochet under Chile, tried to sell weapons to South Africa um, also and uh, Rhodesia as well. But it's now a state that has the uh, uh, the... It's involved in the largest uh, drone project in Europe, the Watchkeeper, whereby the British government have over one billion pounds invested in it, and um, Elbit Systems is guiding it at every stage of the project. It's a, a joint um, project between Elbit Systems, Thales UK. Um, you also have Elbit having subsidiaries like UAV Tactical Systems in Leicester, where um, UAV in Birmingham also um, produced the engines for the drones that Israel use. It has a joint venture between um, Elbit and uh, KBR, who of course were a subsidiary of Halliburton and, and earned big off the Iraq war. Their joint project is called Affinity, and the MOD gave them a 500 million pound contract um, whereby they will provide and maintain British um, uh, aircrafts until 2033. Following the war in Gaza, um, you know, obviously Britain, as um, a signatory to the Arms Trade Treaty, is obliged to assess whether its weapons will be used in human rights violations. Well, we know that just before the campaign in Gaza, Vince Cable, the business secretary in Britain at that time, rubber-stamped uh, seven million pounds worth of arms sales to, to Israel. But also, um, directly following the uh, campaign in Gaza, which included the massacre in Shuja'iya, um, Britain uh, rubber-stamped four million pounds worth of arms to be sold to Israel. Let's not forget that Vince Cable actually came into the British government on the back of the Liberal Democrats being led by Nick Clegg, who said that he supported um, an embargo of selling weapons to Israel before he entered government. Once he entered government, he told the Liberal Democrats friends of Israel that he was hoping to change Britain's universal jurisdiction laws so that um, judges, sort of rogue judges, could not issue arrest warrants for international war criminals as they had done in Britain previously with figures like uh, Livni and others. And that in fact now the director of public prosecutions would have to sign off on that agreement to, uh, to issue an arrest warrant. Well, the director of public prosecutions he was talking about at that time was none other than Keir Starmer. And we can't forget that um, in Operation Castle 2008-2009, Tens, if not hundreds, of teens in London were arrested, um, charged, and convicted, and very heavily sentenced for clashes with the police outside the Israeli embassy. The director of public prosecutions at that time was Keir Starmer, who is now the leader of the Labour Party and has been the recipient of uh, uh, £50,000 uh, in his election campaign from Israel lobbyist Trevor Chin. When we look at what else Britain does in regards to Israel, the uh, F-16, which is manufactured by Lockheed Martin that Israel uses for many of its strikes, contains uh, technology um, and, uh, and, and uh, components that come from BAE Systems, Britain's largest um, arms company. The F-35, which, uh, which Israel values greatly, was also put together with the help of BAE Systems. And even in 2009, the foreign minister at the time, after Operation Castler, David Miliband, said clearly that almost certainly Britain component, British components had been used in Gaza. You've got over 100 companies in this country that sell military equipment to Israel and that have offices here. 
um, BAE Systems even has um, a subsidiary, an Israeli subsidiary for the Israeli market called Rokar, which directly supplies the IDF. Um, we know that Caterpillar, a company based here, sells its bulldozers to Israel, which um, demolishes homes in violation of paragraph 6, article 49 of the Fourth Geneva Convention. Also, when we looked at the March of Return, we know that during that period, Britain was selling um, components for sniper rifles, which it seems sniper rifles, well, no, it's a fact that sniper rifles were used to target peaceful protesters and prevent them from practicing their right under UN Resolution 194. You know, there's more um, uh, incestuous links between Israel and Britain when it comes to arms and it is absolutely vital that we pressure the unions in this country to implement what were policies that they, a lot of them, set in place in 2010. So, for, ex ex uh, for example, Unite the Union Southeast Young Members Committee have published a statement today calling on the Unite um, uh, top dogs to implement the business, uh, the BDS policy that they had passed in 2010 and call on their members to no longer cooperate with the machine of necropolitical apartheid. We've also had 320,000 people in this country sign a, position, a petition calling on the British government to introduce sanctions against Israel, including the blocking of trade and, um, and, and more specifically um, arms. So we are really at an important point for global solidarity for the Palestinian cause. And I hope um, with all of my soul that that turning point can be, can be pushed forward to and we can really encourage serious political education around the Palestinian cause in Britain. That was an incredible, <laughs> incredible breakdown of the UK's collaboration with apartheid Israel and its colonial history with with Israel. I certainly learned a lot from you. I know that a lot of the people that are watching um, got a good history lesson right there. So I appreciate you breaking that down. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny when when you talk about the UK's uh, complicity and abetting of Israeli colonialism, you know, we rarely hear about it in the U.S. You know, in the U.S., like a lot of the activist community really focuses on U.S. empire. But if you look at conflicts like Yemen, where the United States is backing and arming uh, the U.S., you know, the Saudi UAE-led war there, it is the British government and it is the United States and Israel and Egypt and Saudi Arabia and the UAE, UAE committing grave, grave war crimes. And so when, when Biden comes out or a UK official comes out and they say that, you know, we're going to be working with our allies in the region and they specifically name Israel, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and they name the British, um, you know, it's like mass murderers are just seeking advice from other mass murderers. That's really all it is. And so that's why as long as, you know, US and UK uh, imperialism reign the world over, there can never truly be any justice for the Palestinian people or any occupied people around the world because those two governments are working hand in hand to uh, spread bloodshed all around the world just to profit uh, for this 1% billionaire class that you, uh, you know, beautifully talked about and also the military industrial complex, the weapons manufacturers like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. Um, you actually went to Palestine, right? And you were, you were, <laughs> you, were uh, you were taken away in question. Talk to me about your experience when you traveled there and how that affected you. When was that, by the way? Well, so I've been questioned um, by the Israelis, I would say, at least four or five times. Okay. Um, so the first time would have been in 2009, uh, following the war in Gaza, when I went. But I was not questioned as um, a hip-hop artist, I was questioned just as a, a regular civilian. It was it was the next time that I went that they knew who I was, they, um, they knew lyrics, um, they questioned me about lyrics, they questioned me about whereabouts at specific times. You know, they had some level of intelligence. The time that was, um, I think, 
quite detrimental to me was in 2014 or 2015 because I think at that point there was some communication between them and the British and I think that they, you know, you can't really evidence this but I think uh, certain things that were said in the conversation led me to believe that there had been communication that would affect my ability to travel in future and I found that after I had um, come back from that trip um, it's interesting that they let me in every time, but they detain me for about 12 hours and try right. and get as interesting information as they can. Um, the Like I say, after the last time I was detained, every time I'd fly back into British airports, I'd be detained also. So, uh, yeah, I think I think there's, there's high up um, coordination and cooperation between them in terms of issues of security. And did I hear you correctly? You actually went to Gaza? I went to Gaza in 2009, yeah, 2009, yeah. With, can, with you the, tell, can, you, in, can you tell me what was your experience like there and what you saw? I mean, in the end, I was only there for a couple of hours, actually. Oh, okay. We've been kept in Egypt for about six days, um, unable to cross. And when eventually we did, I had, I had booked the ticket about a week in advance for when I needed to be back in um, London for work. And so I really, unfortunately, we were only given 24 hours in Gaza by the Egyptian authorities at that time, Hosni Mubarak's government. Um, however, I and a few others had to leave after several hours. So okay. I, I didn't get to see too much of Gaza. What I did see was obviously a lot of destruction, um, but in, in incredible perseverance by the people, inspiring um, resistance on a, on, a, on, a, on a spiritual and soul-based level, people were able to still stand tall and assert their will in the face of what is really monstrous um, military power. Absolutely. And I want to talk a little bit about your music and your activism. Um, in your track, Obamination, you were extremely scathing um, of President Obama and previous administrations, but especially President Obama because he put such a beautiful, charming face um, on the face of imperialism and Western imperialism and white supremacy. Um, with Obama's right man hand in office now, Joe Biden, where do you see, like, where do you see any change coming from the U.S. government, if any? Well, I think the key is to remember the phrase "optimistic cruelty" and "cruel optimism." So the optimistic cruelty is on the side of the democratic political establishment um, and the cruel optimism is what we as those who are called on again and again and again to vote for the extreme centrism or to um, support whether it's just for aesthetic reasons or for identitarian reasons, those who are deeply um, uh, implicated in our dispossession and harm. Now, when you look at the Democratic Party, you see a party membership that has little to no control over what their policies are. You can't sit on the DNC unless you are a superdelegate. And those uh, superdelegates have to be appointed. Most of them are lobbyists or ex-politicians. And when it really comes down to it, the Democrats and the Republicans share the same um, funders who come from Wall Street, you know, you have to remember that they gave more the Wall Street funders to the Democrats than they did to the Republicans and the system in the United States and here, but I think more sharply in the United States, is a system of legalized bribery. The lobbying system is defined legally as citizenry petitioning the government. But of course, those corporations are not citizenry and many of them will have their money um, stored in some of the British network of tax havens across the world. You know, you, you have to know that we see um, a situation where Obama had literally Citibank um, vetting who his appointments would be in his um, administrations. It was only three days after he was inaugurated that his first drone attack set off. Um, he continued and intensified the outsourcing 
of torture through rendition to other countries. He had promised to close Guantanamo Bay. Today we sit here, Guantanamo Bay is still open. Um, thanks to WikiLeaks, we know that the youngest prisoner when they were first detained in Guantanamo Bay was 13 years old. One of them who was detained when he was 17 years old later killed himself. You know, Obama bailed out Wall Street, but um, did not uh, save the 10 million people that had to um, be rendered homeless. Um, right. Of course, it was Biden who was involved in the reversing of the regulations to the banking system. Obviously, Biden was a big proponent of the uh, prison industrial complex. He passed legislation which quadrupled the prison population and even boasted about it. You know, Biden uh, took credit for what he claimed was the precursor to the Patriot Act, which is the single um, most uh, draconian act um, that has been passed really in our lifetime in terms of basically legalizing everything that Nixon um, did, but on a mass scale to the entire population. You know, during Obama's time, you had a coup against democratically elected uh, leader in Honduras. You had um, uh, Bar Obama pushing to decrease, decrease the minimum wage in Haiti to 30 cents per hour in order to protect uh, corporations. He also gave absolute immunity to the people accused of torture during the Bush era. And his exact way of putting it was this is a time for reflection, not retribution. He was responsible for the arrest and the jailing of more whistleblowers um, from uh, within the US government than any other president had ever. Him and Biden deported more um, than Bush and Trump did, including uh, children. We know that during the Trump years, children in cages was a familiar refrain and mantra repeated by the so-called resistance in the US media, who seemed to have nothing to say about the killing of Palestinian journalist Yasser Murtaja or the, the bombing of the Jalat Tower. Um, but despite him being uh, pushed forward is in, in, in this way, we saw the expansion of uh, AFRICOM. Uh, you know, under Bush, uh, a lot of the African nations refused to house US soldiers and the headquarters had to be in Germany. Well, once Obama came in, uh, a lot of that changed. He destroyed uh, Libya and, and really right. put it on the route to being a, a, a non-functioning, um, warlord-run state in which people were sold in 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 in, in markets of 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 human bondage. Um, you know the, the 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 crimes are 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 plentiful. You know when you think about both Biden and Harris and the roles that at least on a sort of micro level what Harris has done and on a macro level what Biden has done, they are the reason for the status quo today in regard to the military industrial complex. African-Americans in the United States are only 13% of the population, but they are 40% of the prison population. Clearly law is being applied differently to different people. And a lot of Biden's uh, legislation was part of the reason for that. Um, you, have, uh, you have a really uh, horrific situation in the US where a person can earn as low as 86 cents per day in their work. Now, that system generates um, about $60,000 for private interest for, for um, each person that's there. Now, if a relative dies, then that prisoner will have to pay officers for the time to attend the funeral of that relative. What that means is a lot of prisoners leave um, prison uh, in debt because they're being paid so little. So in the same way that a country with 120 guns for every 100 humans necessitates a certain amount of death to achieve a business as usual equilibrium, the prison industrial complex, and you know, it's more internally privatized. There are private prisons which do make up a, 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 a lot of the US system, but it's the, it's the internal levels of privatization that happen in the US system that create the um, 
that create the benefit. Um, you know, you're talking about six out of 10 people in, in, uh, in the US jails um, are awaiting trial. So a lot is generated off of people that the vast majority of prisons, prisoners in the system never even go to trial in the first place. So, you know, in a situation where there's 10.6 million admissions to prison each year, you've got more people in jail in the US than there are even in the city of Philadelphia. And altogether, that is believed to cost about 182 billion per year. Where is that money going? Who's it going to? And why is this political elite um, subject and, 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 and acts at the behest of these private actors, whether it's the military industrial complex or the prison industrial complex? Absolutely. So there's no hope and change coming to any oppressed people. You know, I was at a, I was at, a pro at the Nakba rally here in Minneapolis. Uh, this past weekend, and a lot of young people were actually really hopeful that Biden was going to end support for Israel. And I just had to be the bearer of bad news, look them straight in the eye and say, as long as Western imperialism reigns the world, uh, there will be no justice for Palestinians. The Israel lobby, the military industrial complex, the prison industrial complex uh, are so powerful in this country and in the UK that there uh, will not be any sort of justice for Palestinians. You know, I'm curious to know, you know, you have been very well known in the music scene for being one of the most lyrically gifted and most uh, politically conscious artists around the world. I mean, clearly <laughs> very well informed. It seems like 50 years ago, uh, there were far more artists taking strong political stands against injustice. What sort of barriers and penalties are there in the entertainment industry for people who are vocal about their politics? Well, I think the situation you had uh, many years ago was Firstly, the Vietnam War was considered to be exceptional in that the access to images coming out of Vietnam were greatly damning to the US government. So you had people like John Lennon not only being active against the war in Vietnam, but also funding the Black Panthers and others. And for that reason, he was under surveillance by a special branch in this country. Um, what you also had was figures like Bob Marley playing a really significant role in domestic politics in Jamaica. And obviously the CIA had their ways of targeting, observing and surveilling uh, Bob Marley also. But I think part of it has to be seen as hip hop representing over a trillion dollars of, of uh, over a trillion dollar industry in the United States it would always have been a, a, a viciously contested space for global capital in the interest of global capital. You also have um, some of the legislation passed by Bill Clinton leading to more monopoly controlled media. And so what that opened up for is a space that has the pretense or the illusion of being a quote unquote free market, but is in actual fact a dictatorship of prevailing orthodoxy, which said we only really take information from these limited numbers of companies who are controlled by limited amount of people who all seem to have the same shareholders. And so, and so this is how you create a controlled environment in which people um, are able to quote unquote consume culture, that, that cultural ambience is carefully controlled to push people away from rebellion and towards uh, consumption. And actually I think the reason that people are able to uh, sort of blow with the wind when it comes to somebody like uh, Biden or others, is part of it is down to a Netflix Beyonce understanding of anti-racism. You know, you cannot uh, uh, subconscious, what, what do they call it? They call it unconscious bias, uh, racial awareness training, your way out of literal systemic racism, but also Zionism. You can't um, unconscious bias, racial awareness training your way out of um, uh, out of fascism. But what you can do is you can get corporations to make statements. You can get corporations to make nice aesthetic gestures. You can get um, people to come into those corporations and give lectures that the system can assimilate. 
And what we're seeing, which is really interesting, particularly with the Palestinian issue, is within the big tech companies, mm -hmm. and there's an important investigation that Whitney Webb did and published on Mint Press, which looks at the bid to move Unit 8200, former Unit 8200 employees from the IDF, right? This is a unit which has been involved in um, what they call social listening. That was its um, expertise in analyzing Palestinians and working out how likely they are to become collaborators with the Israeli state, what um, uh, issues that Palestinians may be vulnerable to being blackmailed about. Now, the important thing about what's happening now is within some of these big tech organizations, you have employees who are deeply unhappy with the pro-Israeli slant of what's happening. So whether it is people's accounts being deleted on Instagram, whether it is people's accounts being um, censored on Facebook, whether it is YouTube videos being um, censored, and as was revealed by Whitney Webb in this important article, you know, you have at least 13 former Unit 8200 employees in Facebook slash Instagram. You have about 28 former Unit 8200 employees in Google and you have many in Microsoft. You know, Microsoft's links with the Israeli state as looked at in depth by Mundo Weiss um, and others is, is, is really quite unbelievably deep. Uh, when you look at it. So these companies, which already, and you've got to remember that according to Yasha Levine, who his brilliant book, Surveillance Valley, it looks at the development of the internet following the US defeat in Vietnam, being about squashing um, uh, domestic subversives, but also about um, counterinsurgency campaigns. They developed the internet originally when the ARPANET was being developed by the US military. The, the universities that were working on it, you had student protests and sit-ins against the idea of the internet because of the invasive nature of it and the way that it would be used to um, violate people's privacy. And so now we're in a battle for, for digital self-determination in a way, and what we are now what is now the contradiction which is being revealed, particularly by the uh, the coverage of the Palestinian issue, is that these companies have within them people who, at least on the surface of it, would have some type of interest in, in serving uh, their former employers, potentially, in these companies. And so those contradictions, I think, are going to become more and more apparent while you see over the next few weeks, hopefully, people within those companies begin to speak out more and more and more. And that leads me to my final question for you. I know you have a busy day ahead of you. Um, you know, what do you think people should do now, right now, to end the slaughter in Gaza? Right well, now. <laughs> okay. So in every different place, there are different levers that you can apply pressure to in order to um, to get results from people in power. You have far more to gain from online uh, sending messages to, not harassing, but sending messages to your MPs or your political representatives or organizing protests outside the arms companies or sending messages to people in the, the unions. Um, Obviously, with the United States, I think it's only about something like 12% of the population who are unionized. So such a good job has been done at weakening um, the collective power of labor um, to hold capital to account. But what we're talking about is we're saying that you have directions that you can throw all of this enthusiasm um, in the long term. It has to be turned into real education. It's one thing to come out and have a lot of um, enthusiasm about the cause and excitement, um, but that does have to turn into critical thinking about what it means. The the As I say, the other thing, though, is to directly target levers of power that will move when enough pressure is applied to them. So, for example, if you know uh, people that are employed or you are employed in some of these big tech companies, get more and more people in it to organize 
um, perhaps a walkout or organize a letter that you could um, that you could send as a group of you. Always act in a collective, never act alone, because when you're alone, you're isolated and you are not protected. Um, get your unions to start talking about BDS. Um, get your unions to start twinning and getting involved with Palestinian unions um, within Palestine. Think about the arms and disabling that. You know, we have to remember that when it came to apartheid South Africa, the British uh, Musicians Union claimed to be the first uh, collective trade grouping that banned its members from going and performing in apartheid South Africa. Where culture went, eventually politics followed. You had Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen making the, the Sun City song. You had um, the specials making the Free Nelson Mandela song. And what we now see is that those who were on the other side of history like David Cameron here or Theresa May or Margaret Thatcher often fall over themselves to depict themselves as 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 being something other than what they were at that time and that's why you now have a statue of Nelson Mandela outside parliament and everyone claiming to oppose apartheid so we have to fight in such a way where we understand that it's an attritional battle, but also we're planting seeds for trees that we might not sit in the shade of. And so, and so this is the key to think long term and to organize within organizations. Join an organization now and, and, and assert your collective will. Absolutely. And I like what you said about, you know, we're, we're planting seeds because, you know, a lot of times people feel so helpless. Like, you know, what can I do? What can I do? Is my is my social media post making a difference? Is my protest making a difference? Is my sign making a difference? Is my letter to Congress making a difference? And it is making a difference. I'm one just like you, Loki. I believe that um, it takes one person that creates a ripple effect that eventually leads to a wave of revolution. It's a it's a process, it does not happen overnight. It takes time. But as long as we can band together and unite, I think it's so important to, uni to unite uh, across all political and religious lines, that's what's really gonna make uh, a huge, huge difference. Uh, Loki, thank you so much for joining me today. It's such an honor and pleasure to be with you. Um, you know, I've been following your, your music for so long. It's been such an inspiration. Um, you know, in our work at Mint Press. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Nice one.